Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys as we get to gather together and seek the Lord uh, through prayer and worship and uh, just hearing from Him through His Word. As always, I do pray that we come with expectant hearts and with anticipation as we trust the Lord to be with us here and to move amongst us, to minister to us and draw near to us as we draw near to him. And as the kids make their way out, will the rest of you please make your way to the Gospel of Luke as we continue our verse-by-verse study through this amazing account about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 4, dealing with the temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness. Jesus endured 40 days of fasting and temptation, resisting the attempts of the devil to get him to fall, overcoming uh, by relying upon the Spirit of God and upon the Word of God. This week we're going to continue in chapter 4, picking up where we last left off. Our text this morning will begin in verse 14, and we're going to make our way all the way to verse 30. Uh, The title of our study this morning is going to be The ministry of the Messiah. The ministry of the Messiah. Everyone there? Luke chapter 4? Yeah? All right. If so, will you please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word? I'm going to read uh, our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different Bible, I want to encourage you. Do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke continues his narrative account with the following in verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He answered, or he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Verse 24, it says, Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. 
And so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask God to lead us through it. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the promise of your word that tells us that your spirit will lead us and guide us in all truth. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us as we go through your word. Lord, I pray that as we go through this, Lord, that we would do so trusting that you desire to speak to each and every one of us. And so, Lord, give us attentive hearts and ears. Give us an expectation to hear from you. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Today marks an important time marker in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke has finished with much of the background information and the details dealing with the preparation of Jesus' ministry. In our text today, Luke starts to focus in upon the actual daily public ministry of Jesus. And a simple reading of our text informs us that Luke decided to start off with telling us about Jesus' ministry in two different places and the two different responses that he received in those places. The first part of our text, it highlights Jesus' reception in Galilee in verses 14 and 15, while the second part of our text highlights Jesus' rejection at Nazareth in verses 16 through 30. Now, as we go through each section, we're going to note various things about the ministry of the Messiah, the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see what we can't glean for ourselves in regards to application to our own lives. We don't want it to just to be a, an academic head study today. We want to make application to our hearts. And so let's go ahead. We'll jump right into our first section. Once again, dealing with Jesus's reception in Galilee, beginning in verse 14. Luke writes, then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. We'll stop there. It is worth noting that Luke is not necessarily putting together a chronological order of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Though Luke emphasizes Jesus' public ministry here in Galilee, we do know that from John's Gospel, Jesus actually started his public ministry in the region of Judea. Uh, And he traveled actually around to various regions uh, at the beginning of his ministry. All the events, in fact, that you can read of Uh, In John chapter 1, verse 35, all the way through chapter 4, verse 42, all took place prior to what Luke records for us here in Luke chapter 4. So the gathering of some of his first disciples, uh, Jesus' first public miracle, the changing of water into wine, um, the first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is witnessing to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, at night. Jesus' ministry to the woman at the well in Samaria. All of those events, Luke skips over that he may draw our attention to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Though we're not told specifically why Luke does this, I think it probably has to do with Luke's general audience. Remember that Luke is writing to Gentiles. He's writing to Greeks. 
He really wants to hit home the idea that Jesus was not just for the Jews, okay, but for the Gentiles, for every man, woman, and child. In Galilee, it was a place that was filled with Gentiles. It was actually mentioned in one of Isaiah's prophecies concerning the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It states, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death Upon them a light has shined. And so Jesus' ministry in the region of the Galilee of the Gentiles is a fulfillment of this messianic prophecy by Isaiah. Jesus, as the light of the world, has come and he has shined his light upon those who had been walking in the shadow of death, these Gentiles in the region of Galilee. Luke tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of, of the Spirit. Now, this is worth noting. We've already noted how Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and how he was led by the Holy Spirit in our previous studies through Luke's Gospel. But here we read how Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. The person and work of the Holy Spirit is something that Luke emphasizes throughout his writings, not only in the Gospel of Luke, but also in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote as well. And so far in chapter 4, he's noted how the Holy Spirit worked in the life of Jesus, filling him, leading him, and empowering him. And we as believers, listen, we have the same exact privilege available to us. We too can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. We too can be led by the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul writes, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, Romans 8.14. And we too can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Luke records Jesus' own words in Acts when Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The same exact relationship Jesus had with the Holy Spirit is accessible to us as we walk each day with the Lord. When we repented and we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we were saved. And in that very moment, the Holy Spirit came and took residence inside of us. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. But not all of us are taking advantage of His presence. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, but we aren't always allowing Him to lead us and to guide us. We aren't relying upon Him to empower us and to strengthen us for the needs of each day. And my hope for us is that we would all be like Jesus in this manner. That we would be filled, led, and empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Some of you might be saying, that sounds great, but how? You know, how, how do I allow the Spirit to lead me and to empower me? Well, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, that He will lead us in all truth. Okay, John 16, 13 tells us that. 
We also know that God's word is truth. John 17, 17 tells us that. And so the more we get into God's word, the more opportunity we have for the spirit of God to move, the spirit of God to lead us and to guide us. But I also want to caution you. There is a danger in trying to manipulate the work of the spirit. The spirit moves and works as he sees fit. I think what's most important is our readiness and our willingness to allow the Spirit to lead and to guide and to empower us as He sees fit. Listen, if we want to hear from the Holy Spirit, we need to first be ready to listen. And so we need to take time to wait upon the Lord. We need to seek Him. We need to allow Him to speak to us through His Word, through times of prayer, because He will be faithful to lead you and I as we yield ourselves to Him. Well, back to our text. Jesus returned to Galilee and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, He did all sorts of amazing things throughout the area and news started spreading fast throughout all the region. Verse 15, it says, And He taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. As Jesus went throughout the surrounding region of Galilee, he often would stop and he would teach in the local synagogues. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, maybe this is somewhat new, synagogues were something that were developed during the Babylonian exile. In the Old Testament, we know that the children of Judah... Uh, from the kingdom of Judah, they were led away into 70 years of exile in Babylon. Okay? And it was during that time that they developed these synagogues for the, uh, the Jews because they were unable to gather for prayer, for worship, for study, uh, and ministry at the temple. They were in a, a, a foreign land. And so these synagogues popped up. And even after they returned from their time in exile, the Jews continued the operations of local synagogues to, point, to the point where they became an everyday sight in most all Jewish villages, towns, and cities. During a typical synagogue service, there would be prayer. There would be readings of the scriptures. There would often be a reading from the law as well as a reading from the prophets. Oftentimes, there would be someone who would get, uh, give an explanation or a teaching given regarding the readings. Oftentimes, this responsibility would be given to special guests, rabbis, who were traveling through. And services would close with more prayer, perhaps the singing of some psalms. And so, Jesus was often asked to teach in the various synagogues throughout Galilee, and all the people glorified Jesus. Now, I'm sure Jesus' teachings were awesome. Okay? We are told in various gospel accounts that he spoke and that he taught like none other. But we also know from the other gospel accounts that it wasn't just his teaching that you know, blew these people away that made them glorify Jesus. In Matthew's parallel account of this ministry in Galilee, he records a, a great many things that Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, he writes how Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses 
and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them, we're told. And so, yes, Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, but he was also preaching the gospel, healing the sick, the diseased, and the lame, casting out demons. People from all over were being touched by Jesus in powerful ways. And as a result, the people all glorified Jesus for the many things he had done in their lives. And I look at that and I think to myself, what a great example for us to follow. Because Jesus has touched our lives in many ways as well. We have received the gospel of the kingdom. He has healed our bodies. We've been delivered from sin. We've been set free. He has done so much for us and through us. And we need to remember to always give all the glory to him. Just as these people did as they glorified Jesus in all that he did. Well, We're going to come back to the ministry in Galilee later on in chapter 4 of Luke. But for now, let's turn our attention to Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, beginning with verse 16. It says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Jesus is returning to his hometown of Nazareth here, where he had been brought up and where most of the people were very familiar with him. As was his custom, Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood to read. It was part of the normal synagogue service that one would stand when he read the Word of God, something that we do here at Calvary as well. Jesus, as a special guest returning home, was asked to read and teach there in his local synagogue. Well, the point I want to make here is that Jesus made it a point of emphasis, a part of his weekly routine to attend service at the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. In our modern day vernacular, we would say that Jesus made it a part of his routine or that he was in the habit of attending church services on Sunday. Okay? Because what the synagogue service on the Sabbath was to the Jew is what the worship service on Sunday is to the Christian. Jesus made gathering together to pray, to worship, to hear God's word taught corporately and to fellowship a very huge priority in his life. It was a rock in his calendar. He faithfully attended worship services. And I may be preaching to the choir here because you guys are here at church this morning. But I do think it's important that we note this. Okay? knowing that he spent most of his entire life growing up in Nazareth. Ever since he was a little boy, it's not a far-fetched to suggest that Jesus has been to this particular synagogue over a thousand times throughout his life. And yet he continued to come week after week. You know, I have heard it said many times that people don't need to attend church to be right with the Lord, that the church isn't a building made of bricks and sticks, but a body made of flesh and bones. We are the church, the people, we make up the church, and so we don't have to go to church. And I would, I would wholeheartedly agree that the church is a body of believers. It's not a building, okay? A building doesn't make up a church. People do. But there are those people who say, well, I don't need church. I don't need to meet in a building to meet with God. I just do church from home. 
You know, I stream it online and I enjoy service from the comfort of my own living room. Some say they feel closer to God while out in nature and they do church in the great outdoors, you know, camping out in the mountains or soaking up the rays at the beach. Others feel like church is made up of a bunch of hypocrites and so they don't want to come and, and they don't want to be part of it. Others like to point out their disdain for the leadership of the church and use that as an excuse for not coming to church. Others simply think it boring, uninspiring, and a waste of time because they already know everything that's being talked about at church. You see, there are all sorts of reasons why people don't come to church. All sorts of excuses. And you know what? I think Jesus could have used any one of these excuses and it would have been true. You realize that? Do you think Jesus agreed with the religious leaders of his day? No, we know he didn't. Do you think the synagogues weren't filled with hypocrites? We know they were. Do you think Jesus actually learned anything from gathering and listening to various rabbis and special guests that tried to explain the scriptures to him? I doubt it. If anyone had a legitimate excuse for ditching church and doing things his own way, it would have been Jesus. And yet, we see that it was his custom to go to the synagogue each and every Sabbath. For Jesus, gathering together with other believers to pray, to worship, to study God's word, to fellowship with something that he wasn't willing to compromise. He would not forsake the gathering of the brethren. And listen up, church family, the same should be true of us. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We gather together as a church body to consider one another. Church is not just about you. Okay? We come to church for one another in order to stir up love, in order to stir up good works, in order to exhort one another as we see the day approaching. That day is in reference to the day of the Lord when Jesus Christ will return and he will judge the world and fully establish his kingdom. Look around. Okay, that day is soon approaching. We are living in the last days and we need to heed the exhortation here in Hebrews and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together that we may exhort one another, that we may encourage one another and all stir up love in one another and in all the things of the Lord. So I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you guys are here, but please, Let's follow the example of Jesus. Let's make sure we do not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Let's continue on. We'll see what Jesus read when he was asked to share. Verse 17, it says, And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus was handed the book, uh, more than likely a scroll, 
that contained the prophecies of Isaiah the prophet. And Jesus read from Isaiah chapter 61. Now, Isaiah 61 is a very special chapter of prophecy that all knew spoke of the future work and ministry of the Messiah, the anointed one. Okay? The word anointed, it is the verb of the noun uh, Mashiach in Hebrew, or we say Messiah in English. The Greek word used here is the verb form of the adjective Christos, okay, which also describes one who is anointed. And so Christ, uh, we say in English, Christ is a title referring to Jesus as the anointed one, the Jewish Messiah, the one that Jews had been waiting for and longing for, the one that they placed all of their hope upon, this coming anointed one, the Messiah, is Jesus Christ, okay? This portion of Scripture was one that highlighted the ministry of the Messiah, what the Messiah was going to come and what he was going to do for his people. God was sending the Messiah, as we look at this portion of Scripture, he was sending him to do six things. To preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this mentioning here of the acceptable year of the Lord is most likely a reference to the year of Jubilee. That's described in Leviticus chapter 25. If you want to look it up later on, you can But basically, every 50th year, there was a balancing of the economic system. Slaves were set free and returned to their families. Property that was sold, it reverted to the original owners. And all debts would be canceled. Men and beasts would take the year off from tilling the land. The land would lay fallow for that year. And so, as you can imagine, the people greatly looked forward to this time. They no doubt considered this ministry of the Messiah in the physical realm. They believed the Messiah would come and that he would literally heal the brokenhearted and set captives free and return the eyesight of the physically blind. He would give freedom to those who were oppressed by foreign nations and rulers like Rome. They saw the Messiah as a political and military leader coming to their rescue. But there was a spiritual side of the Messiah's ministry that they didn't understand. Jesus was coming as the Messiah. And he did bring some physical healing to some. He did bring recovery of sight to some. He did preach the gospel to the poor. But his main emphasis was upon the spiritual, not the physical. He wasn't a political or military leader. He wasn't coming to set them free from the oppression of the Romans, but rather he was coming to set them free from the bondage and the oppression of sin. And really, when we take a look at that list one more time, we see what really was at the heart of the ministry of the Messiah. The Messiah came to undo the terrible effects of sin, the damage that sin brings upon all who are bound to it. You see, sin impoverishes us. But the Messiah comes to bring good news to the poor. Sin breaks our hearts. But the Messiah comes to heal the brokenhearted. Sin, it makes us captives and enslaves us. But the Messiah comes to set us free from sin. Sin blinds us. 
But the Messiah comes to heal those of us who have been blinded by sin. Sin oppresses us and it keeps us down. But the Messiah has come to give us liberty, to lift us up and to get us going again. Jesus came to set us free from the powerful effects of sin. But he wasn't going to do so through some political or military campaign. He was going to do so through giving his life in exchange for ours. He was going to take our sin upon himself and die in our place upon the cross of Calvary, paying the penalty for our sin, but then rising from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death and granting to us all a right standing before the Lord. Instead of being poor, we now know the riches of a personal relationship with God. Instead of having broken, empty hearts that we could not mend, that we could not feel, no matter how hard we tried, Jesus has come and He's mended our hearts and He's filled it to the point of overflowing. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are free in Christ. The scales upon our eyes, they've been removed, and now we see He has lifted us up and He's partnered together with us, giving to us rest. And we've been yoked together with Jesus, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Listen, we can praise God for the ministry of the Messiah and all that He's done for us. Well, let's continue in on in our text. We're going to note the initial response of the people there in Jesus' hometown. Read verse 20 through first part of 22. It says, Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. We're going to stop right there. After Jesus had finished reading the text, he closed up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. This was the normal procedure at that time. You'd rise to read the word, but you'd sit to teach the word. I thought, maybe I should have had a chair here uh, this morning. I teach from a chair on Wednesdays, though, so kind of biblical. Uh, I won't do it on Sunday, though. Um, anyways, as Jesus sat down, every eye is glued upon him. The excitement and the anticipation was palpable. They were waiting to hear what Jesus would say. They had heard so much about him from others and what he had been doing in Capernaum. They wanted to see and hear for themselves something amazing. And as Jesus sat down, he simply stated, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Listen, we have to understand the magnitude of this statement and what Jesus was really saying. Jesus is claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. He was claiming to be God's anointed one, spoken of by Isaiah the prophet some 750 years prior to this time. Generations and generations of people had longed for this day to come and had never seen it. And Jesus is telling them that the day has come. Today is the day. The Messiah has come and Jesus is saying, I am Him. You see, it wasn't by chance that Jesus read from Isaiah chapter 61. 
He purposefully read from that portion of Scripture. Verse 17 describes how when he was given the book, that he first searched through it and he found the place where this was written. Okay, If it was on a scroll, he had to go through 60 different chapters to get to Isaiah chapter 61. Okay, I imagine the people were very interested and intrigued as Jesus sat there and he rolled and rolled and rolled through the scrolls and they're like, Where's he going? Man, Isaiah doesn't have 66, I think, chapters in it. Okay, so they're going and going, and they're like, what's he going to say? What's he going to speak? Jesus was being very intentional, and he was making a bold and powerful proclamation to his hometown people, I am your Messiah. But also note, not only what he read, but what he didn't read. Okay? He did not read all of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, because he stopped in the middle of verse 2. Isaiah 61, 2 states, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You see, Isaiah 61 speaks of elements of Jesus' first and second coming. The day of vengeance, the day of judgment will come in his second coming. And that's why Jesus stopped there. And he rolled up the scroll without continuing any further. Jesus' message was very specific to his ministry at that time. This is what God had called him to do. This is what God had sent him to do. His time had come. He was making this proclamation to his hometown first and foremost. And we read in the beginning of part of verse 22 how they initially responded. We're told that they all bore witness to him. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Now, obviously, Luke didn't record all of Jesus' teaching here. We get the sense that Jesus was able to share more, whether it was prior to this statement or after, we can't say. But I think it's safe to assume Jesus shared other things with them. For the people marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. It's more than likely that they weren't referring to just his statement about the scripture being fulfilled in their hearing because that's not necessarily, you know, wonderful, marvelous, gracious, powerful words. It's a very simple statement. Um, And so we get the idea that Jesus had other things to say. But I think the most important thing that I want to note here and and highlight is that Jesus' teachings were filled with grace. I really like that. I I love that, in fact. You see, the religious leaders of that day, they had twisted things up and they had made following God a bunch of rules, a bunch of rituals and regulations. Jesus came on the scene and he taught a message of grace that was fresh, that was encouraging and uplifting to the people. Nobody else taught that way. All the other rabbis, they were all about the law. But Jesus was a teacher of grace, a teacher of unmerited favor given as a gift from God. What a welcome message to hear when all you've ever been told is that you aren't good enough. Okay, to have someone come along and say, listen, you don't have to be good enough. Listen, you never will be good enough, but that's okay because it's not about following the law, but it's about grace. See, grace has a way about changing everything. And I want to be more like Jesus in this manner. I want to be one that emphasizes God's amazing, unmerited, 
incomparable gift of grace. You see, if I'm going to err, I want to err on the side of grace. And I hope that we all would feel the same. That we would be a people that are all about the grace of God. Extending it to others as we would desire them to extend it to us. Well, unfortunately the account doesn't end there. Take a look at the rest of verse 22. It says, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? While many bore witness and marveled at the gracious words of Jesus, some began to question the situation. Some began to question the identity of Jesus and who he really was. Was he really the Messiah? It was exciting to think that their own hometown boy could be the Messiah. But then again, maybe it was just too good to be true. Maybe Jesus was just trying to pull a fast one on them. Matthew and Mark record a visit to Nazareth as well in their gospel accounts. And they speak of how when the people began to question the identity of Jesus, that it led to them being offended. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 records the people saying, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. That word offended in the Greek is the word scandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal from. And they thought Jesus was trying to pull a quick one on them, a scandal upon them, to trick them, to defame them, to bring disgrace upon them, as if Jesus were some sort of charlatan trying to cheat them. Listen, you know what the truth of the matter was? is that it was indeed a scandal. But it was a scandal of grace. But for them, they couldn't get beyond what they had already seen and known about Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. They saw him grow up. He wasn't anything special. He was a carpenter. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's definitely not a political, military powerhouse. He didn't fit the mold that they were looking for in a Messiah. He wasn't that strong leader that they assumed the Messiah would be in regards to politics and and military. He was just a carpenter. You know, there's an old saying out there that rings true in this situation. Familiarity breeds contempt. Because they were familiar with Jesus, because they had seen him grow up as a boy, as a youth, and when they were not really overly impressed by his pedigree, his upbringing, his sphere of influence, instead of gladly receiving the message, they began to question it. And ultimately, it led to them feeling contempt towards Jesus. They allowed their own preconceived ideas and notions to prevent them from properly receiving Jesus as their Messiah. Sometimes that can happen to us as well. We think that God can only use certain types of people, that God can't use us. And we limit God, and we say God can only work in certain ways. Listen, church family, can I, I beg of you, please don't limit God. Okay, please don't put your expectations, your preconceived ideas and notions upon God to limit what he can or cannot do. 
God loves to do the unexpected. He loves to use the least likely of the bunch to reinforce the fact that it is all about Him and His grace and not about us and our performance. Their questioning of the identity of Jesus led to their unbelief. And in Jesus, He recognized this truth. And so He addresses their unbelief in these next verses. Read with me verses 23 through 27. It says, He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. We'll stop right there. Jesus, realizing their unbelief, he addresses the situation by sharing with the people a proverb and a statement of truth illustrated by two examples. The proverb, physician, heal yourself, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country was basically a way of demanding a sign as proof or as evidence. They didn't believe him. They did not believe his word. They didn't believe all the reports they had heard about him in Capernaum. No, they wanted to see it for themselves. They wanted him to do it for them. What he had done for the people in Capernaum, all the healing, all the casting out of the demons, all of that kind of stuff that happened there, they wanted to see him do it right then and there in their own hometown. They were not going to believe him unless he proved it through some sort of miraculous sign or wonder. But listen, here's the problem. The problem is this. Signs and wonders don't produce faith. Many people like to believe so. Many people have convinced themselves of so. If God would show me a sign, if God would show me some kind of wonder, if he would just peek his head out and speak to me, I'd believe, you know, we say all these types of things. But signs and wonders, they do not produce faith. They only produce an insatiable appetite for more signs and wonders. Okay? I'll give you an illustration. Maybe you've seen something like this before. Not that I'm necessarily uh, encouraging magic or the use of magic, but have you ever seen someone do a cool magic trick? Okay, Maybe a card trick or something like that. When they're done, you don't come to the conclusion, wow, these people know how to do magic, right? You, you know what you normally do? You say, do it again. I want to see it again. Okay? And then they'll do it again. You're like, ah, I didn't catch it. Do it again. And we want to see it over and over and over again so that we might figure out how it's done, that we might be able to learn it ourselves and maybe show off our other friends. Look at all these cool tricks that I can do. Signs and wonders are kind of like that. They don't produce faith. They simply produce a desire to see it again and again and again so that you can either explain it or figure it out for yourself and try to use it to your own advantage. Paul tells us, that faith doesn't come by signs and wonders, but it comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If they don't believe and trust Jesus' word, then no amount of signs and wonders would ever do the trick. Jesus followed up his proverb with a statement of truth, stating, 
Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And he followed up his statement with two examples to illustrate this truth. The first example was that of Elijah and his ministry. Okay? Elijah was a prophet to the same northern region, and he faithfully went around declaring the word of the Lord. But the people would not heed his word. They were filled with unbelief. And so, when God shut up the heavens for over three years, instead of sending Elijah to someone in the land of Israel to minister to, God sent him to a woman from Zarephath, a widow, a Gentile, who was in desperation. You guys know the account, right? It's in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah was sent to this woman. He found her gathering sticks for a fire. She was actually about to prepare her very last meal for her and her son. She had only had enough flour and oil to make one small meal for the two of them. Elijah had said to her, hey, you know, go fetch me something to drink. And then he said, as she starts to go get him something to drink, he says, and make me something to eat as well. Make me a a, a piece of bread. And, And she basically tells Elijah, hey, I'm actually gathering these sticks up to make my last meal. My son and I, we're gonna We've got enough bread, enough flour, enough oil to make one thing, and we're going to eat it, and then we're just going to die. And interesting, Elijah doesn't say, oh, okay, never mind. He says, well, make it for me first. Go ahead, make the cake, like I said, for me first. And then afterwards, make one for you and your son. And then he gives her a promise, and he says, the, the bin of flour will not run dry, and neither will the jar of oil, but it will continue to, to flow. And... The woman trusted Elijah, and she made him his cake first. And lo and behold, the bin of flour and the jar of oil never ran out all the time during the famine upon the land. For three and a half years, that flour never ran out. That jar of oil never ceased. The second example Jesus gave was of that of Elisha, the prophet that followed after Elijah in this same region. And just like in Elijah's day, the people did not listen to Elisha. And so they were still filled with unbelief. And Jesus gives the example of Naaman and the healing of his leprosy that's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Not only was Naaman a leper, a Gentile, uh, but he was also a military leader of a nation that was oppressing the people in the northern regions of Galilee. God brought healing upon Naaman as he was faithful to follow through with Elisha's simple instructions. He basically said, okay, just go dunk yourself in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. At first, Naaman was like, I'm not going to do that. But then he was convinced, hey, if it was something hard to do, you'd do it. This is something simple. Why not give it a try? And, And he does. And lo and behold, the Lord healed him and removed his leprosy. Both of these examples, they are illustrating the same truth. Because of unbelief amongst his people, the Lord chose to do his mighty works among the Gentiles, amongst those who would believe. Because of unbelief, these people in Nazareth were going to miss out on their Messiah. They were going to miss out on the incredible opportunity to have their sins forgiven, to have a right standing with the Lord. Unbelief, it hinders the work of the Lord. In Matthew's account of Jesus' visit to Nazareth, it is stated, now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It wasn't that Jesus couldn't do those things, but he wouldn't because of their unbelief. Don't allow unbelief 
to keep you from receiving all that the Lord has for you. Walk by faith. Trust in the Lord. Trust in His Word. And watch Him do amazing things in you and through you. Well, the people understood exactly what Jesus was saying through this proverb and through these illustrations. Let's see how they responded. Verse 28, it says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, we're told, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Instead of being filled with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit like Jesus, these people, they were filled with wrath. These people were filled with wrath because they took Jesus' words as an insult. He was basically calling out their unbelief and they didn't like it. And instead of humbling themselves and repenting from their unbelief, they simply sought to silence the messenger. Isn't it amazing how fast a group can change? I mean, look at this. They marveled at Jesus and they loved every bit of what he had to say as he spoke gracious words to them. But the moment he said anything about them that they didn't want to hear, they were ready to kill him. Makes me wonder, it makes me question. How do we respond to those who tell us things that we may not want to hear? Are we open to others speaking into our lives? Or do we only surround ourselves with people that are going to tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear? Paul warned that a day would come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be churned aside to fables. Listen, these are the days in which we live today. That that warning that Paul gave to Timothy, it has come to pass. People have heaped up for themselves teachers that simply tell the people what they want to hear. There is no hell. Pastors telling people that. All roads lead to heaven. It doesn't matter which God you worship. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. There are no absolutes. It's not sin. It's a lifestyle. God's okay with it. Okay? God wants us to be happy, so do what makes you happy. Okay? These are the kinds of things that are perpetrated in today's church, behind pulpits today. And they are all lies. They are simply the product of people finding for themselves people that are willing to tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear, the truth of God's Word. Well, these people, they rose up. They tossed Jesus out of the synagogue, out of the city. They led Him to the brow of the hill upon which their city was built, and they tried to kill Him by throwing Him off the side of a cliff. But interestingly, we're told, Jesus passed through the midst of them, and went his way. Jesus departed the city of Nazareth, and this is the last we will hear from the people of Nazareth in Luke's gospel. Jesus didn't force himself upon them. He didn't force them to believe upon him. He presented them with truth. He gave them an opportunity to respond to it, and then he went upon his way to continue his ministry elsewhere.
And God often does the same in our lives today. God doesn't force himself upon us. Jesus doesn't make us believe in him. He doesn't force us to believe in him. He gives us a choice. And really, as we look at today's portion of Scripture, we're reminded we have one of two choices. We can receive Jesus like the people of Galilee did and allow ourselves to be filled and led and empowered by the Spirit, all while giving all praise, honor, and glory to God for what He's done. Or we can reject Jesus like the people of Nazareth did. We can allow our preconceived ideas and notions to keep us from receiving the truth and to keep us from responding in faith. We can miss out on the glorious ministry of the Messiah and remain enslaved to our sin and blind to all that the Lord has for us. My hope, my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would all receive Him and that we would live in the grace and in the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the gospel of grace. Lord, we thank You that You came and You brought just a fresh word from the Lord, that it wasn't about rules and regulations and rituals and the law, but it was about grace. It was about faith, trusting You trusting in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I do hope and I do pray that every single person here this morning has made the choice to receive you into their hearts and into their lives. That your Holy Spirit, Lord, indwells each and every one of us. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here that have received you, Lord, but have not yet really allowed themselves to be led by and empowered by your Spirit, I pray that they would be open to that work in their heart and in their life today. And Lord, I do pray as well that if there are any who have yet to receive you, they find themselves on the other side, lumped together with those of Nazareth today, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we don't know how many more opportunities we will be given to respond to this gospel message. Lord, for the people of Nazareth, Luke never again mentions any trip there. They had their opportunity. You shared the truth and you went your way. Lord, I pray that if there are any here that have yet to decide, that have yet to receive you, Lord, that today they would do so that they would take advantage of the opportunity presented to them, that they would be filled by your Spirit, led and empowered, Lord, that they would live a life of truth and grace. May that be true of all of us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.